Securacy is proud to be a supporter of ASIO's podcast series. With insightful presenters and expansive subjects, the podcast series is a must if you want to keep at the forefront of the industry. Securacy, security workforce management software, Reimagined. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Security Insider podcast. And today we are speaking with Brian DeCary, CEO of ASIL, about building security industry capability and capacity, driving professionalism through a National Private Security Act. Brian, welcome back to the show. Thank you, John. So, this was an interesting move on behalf of ASIL. We've been talking for a long time about trying to achieve mutual recognition of licensing and standards across all of the different states. It's been part of the uh, the report that ASIL put out earlier this last year, around 12 months ago, uh, but it's obviously been challenging to get buy-in. So you have taken an interesting step. Talk us through what ASIL has decided to do. So the, the ASIL position goes back probably almost 25 years in terms of getting nationally consistent uh, licensing standards for the industry. Uh, and we've tried the traditional routes of uh, lobbying and advocating state by state, trying to get government uh, at a federal level to support it. Uh, in 2008, COAG agreed to implement nationally consistent standards, but sadly we're 14 years on and we're no further forward. So rather than continue on of more of the same, we thought let's maybe have a, a circuit breaker, let's come up with a model uh, National Private Security Act to provide a framework for discussion and the catalyst for change to start the discussion by states and territories and the federal government to have nationally consistent security licensing regulation. So it, it, it really is to try and uh, add some impetus to something which whoever you speak to, they say it's a good idea. Every jurisdiction thinks it's a good idea, but everyone's scratching their head as to how do we get there. So. Uh, so what we thought is rather than scratch our heads as well, let's just develop something and actually then advocate for this to be implemented. So that's where we're at now. We've developed a document which is out in the marketplace for public comment. Uh, we've gone out to regulators. We've gone out to government. Uh, so it's it's step one uh, towards a longer, a longer outcome. Okay. So obviously there are a number of challenges involved in getting buy-in. What is in this draft legislation and how does it overcome the challenges of getting states to sort of see themselves as still relevant and wanting to buy in? So, so the intention of, the, of the, the draft, the Model Act, is to develop a framework that would be ideally adopted nationally at a federal level, but implemented on a state and territory level. So the states and territories will not uh, lose their ability to, to regulate operators in their state. However, it gives them a consistent framework so uh, we have the freer movement of individuals and it ultimately businesses across jurisdictions. So we don't have that patchwork of eight regulatory regimes, which are all different. Even though they're doing the same thing in each state and territory, there are eight different sets of rules, which is expensive. There's uh, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape. Uh, and anyone you speak to uh, agrees it's why so what we're trying to do is is how do we actually address this uh, and and get by and so it's it'll take a while but it's yeah again it's trying to give uh, a roadmap for the future yeah uh, rather than just keep complaining that it doesn't work we've decided to come up with a solution okay so walk us through the roadmap what's involved in the legislation so so a lot of it is common sense uh, so for example we want uh, consistent 
licensing uh, categories and standards for each class of license. We want standardized probity uh, requirements for each jurisdiction, So, uh, which includes, for example, um, student visa holders being uh, exempt from getting a license. Uh, we want to professionalize the industry. So we do not want transient workers. We want security professionals. Uh, we want the use of criminal intelligence uh, because we think that's important given the role the industry plays. We'd like to see uh, people in the cybersecurity space uh, as a minimum be required to undertake probity checks because yep. it's, it's to us it's ludicrous that a security officer has to go through probity checks yet someone working on a, a mainframe or a server uh, in a bank in a bank or a bit of critical infrastructure has no probity checks uh, or is not required to unless the contract specifies that. Um, what we'd also like to see is a, a national uh, security database of licensed security personnel so security providers can uh, automatically check on a daily basis if anybody's license is cancelled. It is a con uh, consolidated database. So uh, uh, we've achieved some success in getting uh, consistent training requirements. So the competencies are now consistent. However, uh, how those training competencies are implemented and the assessments are, are conducted vary from state to state. We would like to see consistency not only in what, is, what has to be delivered, but how it's assessed. Yep. So the output is consistent. So uh, there, you know, there's some provisions in there about subcontracting and, and transparency for clients. All of the, the elements of the, the draft or the model act is to raise industry standards. Um, and, and part of this piece is to get a, a more professional industry. Uh, buyers of security services need to, you know, if they want better, uh, and they need to reward better. Uh, so there needs to be a, uh, an understanding that quality comes at a, at a premium. Uh, yeah. But that's what we're pushing for because the industry is playing, I suppose, an increasingly important role, whether it's a defense basis, whether it's critical infrastructure. And we've now got the Security of Critical, critical Infrastructure Act and there's increased obligations both in the owners of the, of the infrastructure but also the security providers we need to elevate uh, the quality and standards of the industry. And we believe this is a step in the right direction. Okay, so when you talk about elevating the quality and the standards of the industry, obviously when you're looking at drafting any sort of legislation which will be national, one of the biggest challenges we've had in the past is that some states have said, no, we're not going to come on board because we believe that our standards are better than the other states and whatever it may be. And there are two directions you can take with drafting a national standard. You can either run as slow as your slowest member or you can adopt the idea that a rising tide raises all boats. Which way have you gone? Uh, what we've done is actually uh, reviewed all the legislation that's around the country uh, and, and, and picked the bits that we think are the most effective, that are working the best. And, and and aim to to raise the standard. We're not we're not looking to have a minimum, super low standard. We want to raise the industry standard. So it will be for some providers might be a bit of a, a jump up, but for most it should be fine. It should be what they're already doing. Most of it is already the law, uh, but we've just tried to standardise it, and the wording is consistent across jurisdictions, uh, because some some of the changes between jurisdictions are terminology, uh, different phrases, different classes of license and yet they're doing the same thing so yeah. so i think it's uh it is if i characterize it it is it is raising the the, the standard so there is a, a 
an acceptable minimum, and then from there we would like to push it up over time so the the industry professionalizes uh, and continues to professionalize. Yeah, there's an interesting balance that needs to be sought there though between raising standards and creating barriers to entry that are so high that the average person won't be able to come into the industry, be it due to training time costs, whatever it may be. How do you find that balance? Oh, but I suppose the, the underpinning piece is whoever is coming into the industry as an individual, for example, uh, they need to be competent to do the yeah. work. And the, the, the requirement at the moment, the Cert 2 in, for security officers, um, which is 14 competencies, uh, that is, we believe, a reasonable level for new entrants. There is a training package for the technical sector, but only one or two jurisdictions actually... Uh, requires that to be conducted. Again, we okay. would support that because we want competent people in the industry. So I don't think we've set the standard too high. It's a, it is a, an acceptable level for people to have to undertake that training. I think the issues that we would like to see addressed and the Act hopefully tries to address some of that is the, the length of time it takes to get a license. Yep. Uh, from and The training is only a, a component, two to yeah. three weeks. It can often take three to nine weeks to then get your security license, which uh, in the current environment where there's plenty of other industries to work in, no one wants to wait three, wait three to four months having started training to then being able to start work. So we want to see that uh, process more efficient without dumbing down the standard. We still want probity. We still want people to be competent, but we need to, to compact that turnaround time because three to four months uh, where you can't work is not terribly attractive yeah i suppose one of the questions that you know a lot of people are going to be asking is in the past it's been terribly difficult to get the government to take any of this seriously we have thought that you know maybe major events like the commonwealth games where we've needed transportability of licensing would be the impetus to make them say okay well we need to have a look at this as an issue um that doesn't seem to have been enough do you believe that with what's going on in the current global climate and the fact that we may see some significant changes as far as, you know, defence and strategic issues and, and possibly, you know, well, I'm, I'm going to stop beating around the bush, you know, if we end up in an armed conflict with another country and the ramifications for what that might mean for Australia and the fact that the current Australian private security industry outnumbers both the police and the defence force... Are we at a position in history now where it's time for the government to say, okay, we need to start looking at this seriously. There is a need here. Well, the geopolitical environment is, is significantly different to what it was three to five years ago. So certainly there is already discussion about a potential role. Should there be a, a conflict in the region of uh, freeing up frontline uh, military personnel and what role could the private sector play, including private security? So I think there's a, there's a shift and I think the change of government uh, is uh, provides the potential for the industry to uh, hopefully work towards this outcome. Uh, so we've had probably about 10 years of inaction uh, from a, a federal level in terms of getting consistency. But you know we've done reports with the Australian Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Uh, there've been other government reports which have all recommended uh, we need nationally consistent standards. So it's it's not just Asia saying this. Uh, Business groups I talk to, uh, federal government uh, bodies uh, that advise the government are saying we need nationally consistent standards because private security is protecting our ports, uh, 
uh, utilities, our hospitals, our critical defensive, infrastructure. You know, it, it, it is a fundamental part. And as you say, you know, we've got a workforce of close to 200,000 people, uh, which is a massive uh, resource. But we need to make sure it's fit for purpose uh, and it has the capability and capacity, if required, to take on additional roles. So we need to start now. Um, uh, another catalyst for our action is uh, the Mutual Recognition Act, Automatic Mutual Recognition came in, uh, into effect recently. We've got four jurisdictions have signed up to it where security personnel will be able to move across borders um, and they put in place systems to do that. But we also have four major jurisdictions who have sought uh, exemptions uh, not to be included. Uh, and, and part of the catalyst to, for the, the, the model act that we've developed is to, is to try and set the, the, do the groundwork now. So when those come, uh, states uh, come up to review automatic mutual recognition, uh, we can start to see that the reservations they have about public safety um, have been addressed. And it's a bit of a, a, a strange situation where they're worried about public safety from other states. Um, well, why don't we just fix the problem? Yeah. So there isn't a worry about uh, vulnerabilities because in the end, when we have events like the Commonwealth Games in 2026, the Olympics in 2032, security personnel will be moved around the country to help supplement the resources locally. So we need to be able to move people around. So we need to work on that. It's a priority, but it's uh, we seem to have lost a decade uh, where yeah. the, with the best intentions, nothing has happened. So we need to... We need to get things happening. Yeah. And I guess having what you had spoken about before, which is a national register of licensed security personnel, has broader implications because then that gives the opportunity for everyone who's registered on that register, for, for lack of a better term, to say, I want to be a volunteer if there's a national emergency or whatever it may be. And so we then have the ability, if there are major bushfires or floods in another state, rather than having police and SES standing around guarding generators and, and roads and all sorts of other stuff, it's like, okay, well, we've got a national register of security personnel and we can see who wants to be a volunteer and we can see who's in this region. Let's get them in to help with national disasters. Is that an option? Well, it becomes a national resource as well. So yep. when there is a crisis in whatever state or territory, uh, it's a potential resource to say, well, we need 300 people, 500 people in a particular location. And that is uh, who are trained to a certain standard. They have been probity checked. They are fit and proper people. Maybe they can assist uh, whether it's a flood, whatever the whatever the crisis is. And I think that's what we're doing. If, if we can do the groundwork now and get the consensus and, and, and build some momentum, we can actually achieve it. But uh, I think what we've found is no one state is going to push it no. uh, because the status quo is easier. Um, but this is not a quantum... This is not a quantum step. It's it's a logical step towards raising standards. It's saying, why not everyone agree to consistency? Uh, the same probity, the same training, same assessment, uh, same licensed classes. So, you know, when, when we have, uh, I think it was a story, uh, someone mentioned the other day, someone who's moving uh, some cash and valuables from Queensland down to South Australia, they had to have four licenses to do that job yeah. uh, because they were crossing over state borders, which is a nonsense. Um, we should all agree on national standards and then work towards it. Yeah. Uh, and the states and territories will not lose their their powers 
Um, and I think a concern that has been raised by you know one regulator is, you know, each state will their enforcement capability is different. Well, we need to look at how do we make them more consistent. Uh, there's always obstacles, but there's always solutions. And I think doing nothing is actually not going to be good for the nation. So we need to find a way through and we need to have that commitment. And we're hopeful, uh, getting some positive messages, hopefully out of the federal government, that maybe they might be supportive of uh, of what we're trying to do because we believe the, the end goal is, is certainly in the industry's benefit, but it's to the broader community's benefit that there is a more capable, competent, you know, effective security industry because people rely on it every day, whether it's the police rely on it for CCTV footage, for alarm monitoring. We need to make sure it's effective. Yeah. So given that you've now developed the draft legislation, what's the next step? How do we sort of progress from here to the point where government starts looking at this stuff? Well, well, the next step is we've uh, certainly we've reached out to government, as I mentioned, to industry groups. Uh, we want to hear their thoughts on the on the draft, so we've made it available on the Asia website. Um, they can download the draft uh, document, uh, and then they have until we've given them till the end of October to provide some written comments. They can be anonymous. We, we're not looking to to pin anything on anyone. We just want constructive feedback to say. We don't think that'll work. That's too tough. Whatever it is, we want feedback because then we will take on board that comment and see whether we need to make changes. We, we're not professing uh, that this is perfect, but uh, you know, you got to start somewhere. And you know, we've been stuck for 14 years. Um, yeah. I mean, that's not acceptable. We need to find a resolution. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think most people would agree that if you had to have four different driver's licenses to drive from one part of Australia to another and pay for those four different driver's licenses and reset your driver's test every couple of years in each of those various different states and have your photo taken in each of the states and have your fingerprints taken in each of the states to be able to drive from Queensland to to Adelaide would be unacceptable and the industry is really no different. And I think there is a frustration within the industry that this is, uh, people have almost given up. This is yeah. so. It's we're asked, we're after consistent standards, better standards, and yet no one seems to be listening. But it is a big industry, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's almost the elephant in the room in terms of national security because it is enormous. Yeah. Uh, the, the 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 electronic security, the biometric security, the physical security, as well as the protective, it's huge, and yet it's overlooked. And we're already starting to see some of the impacts of, for example, shortage of of security personnel now on airports, uh, not yeah. being able to protect major events because they're short of personnel. It, it will start to impact economic activity. So we need to work a way to make the industry uh, capability be there for when it is needed because it's too late when it's needed and there's no one there. Yeah. I suppose one of the challenges you, you mentioned earlier was the, the lead time between people applying for licences and then the paperwork of getting those licences. Is there much thought given within this draft to how you address those sorts of things? And, and if so, is it reasonable to look at things like, well, look, perhaps we need to look at temporary licences. And I know we've had this kind of arrangement in the past, but temporary licences where the RTO can say, okay, if you've been found to be competent at the end of your training course, we're going to issue you with a temporary licence for three months that allows the government time to run the probity checks and the background checks to come back to you. And if at that time it doesn't pass, then your licence is pulled or whatever it may be. The, well, the, the temporary or provisional licence is, is not something that we've entertained in the draft because okay. we have uh, 
it's had a, a checkered history yep. uh, when it was in place because nobody wanted a, what they were called P-platers. Uh, so we haven't gone down that route. But I think the, the bit about the turning around uh, license processing, I think a new entrant into the industry uh, would possibly wait two to four weeks uh, to be before they get licensed. Yep. And that should be doable. Uh, but we're now, as I mentioned before, we're seeing in some states it's four to six weeks, but in some it can be three months. Yep. And that is, I mean, there's no reason unless there is a a challenge in terms of validating who that person is, but that should be the exception. We should be able to turn around. People are trying to do the right thing. We should be able to turn that around with some more efficient license application processes, online processes, uh, ways to, to, you know, to start issuing, for example, things like uh, you know, virtual uh, license uh, certificates and, yep. and, and badges. We've got to look at different ways to think outside the box uh, and get people into the industry, but not lowering standards. That's We do not want to dumb it down to the point where it's just tick and flick and fingers yep. crossed, nothing goes wrong. We want the standards to be uh, as high as possible and practical. But yeah, I, I would say three to four months is yeah. totally unacceptable. It's uh, uh, I would not wait three to four months to get a job yeah, uh, you know that's that would be daft. Yeah, part of the the paper that was put out twelve months ago, the Security Twenty Twenty Five report, also alluded to the idea that there should be a national office uh, within the Department of Home Affairs to manage the security side of things. What role would that play in this national licensing? Well, we haven't. Um, I suppose what we've tried to do with the act or the draft is to it really to more focus it around a. A model act, rather yep. than have a national uh, regulator or security industry authority, but I think there would be a role for the federal government to, for example, through the uh, the national license database of all security personnel, there would be a role for the federal government to consolidate that information, um, uh, and and try and drive the states forward. So this is just, I mean, th things will change over time. So we'll have to keep. Reviewing, if even if the act gets up tomorrow, it needs to be reviewed in a few years. So the federal government needs to have uh, an involvement. Um, I think the the key thing in drafting what we have drafted is we do not want to take powers away from the states. Yep. The states will continue to have authority, um, but we believe they need to be working towards a common, more commonality rather than uh, varying off into different directions because. Uh, I think the industry would be called upon increasingly to do a range of different things and we need to make sure they're capable. And at the moment, you know, we're just languishing in terms of, you know, standards and uh, enforcement capability. It, it's so inconsistent um, and there are variations between jurisdictions that we, that creates massive vulnerabilities. Yeah. There's also a fair bit of inconsistency though around where within each state the licensing arrangements sit. So in some states we've got it as part of the police, in other states we've got it as part of the Department of Weights and Measures, in other states it's part of the Office of Fair Trading. Does the, the legislation that you've drafted or does the intent of this sort of, even though it stays with the state, does it change where that sits within the state? Uh, we, I mean, the actual draft doesn't specify whether it's yep. police or Office of Fair Trading or yep. uh, Consumer and Business Services. It's the output we're after. Now, which which uh, agency does that? They have to be able to do criminal checks. They need to do um, 
ongoing, uh, checking to make sure there's no criminal elements, uh, uh, active uh, monitoring, there needs to be effective compliance. So it may be in some jurisdictions that's police, in other jurisdictions, jurisdictions it may be another uh, agency. But for us, it's more the output. Who actually does it really is not relevant as long as they're doing it to the same consistent standard. And it, there may be an argument to, to, you know, put it into policing, but uh, it's the outcome we're after. We're not really specifying which which jurisdiction, whether it's, uh, yeah, as I say, fair trading or consumer and business consumer and business affairs. But they've got to make sure they enforce consistently. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, we will have, you know, potential companies domiciling in, in states that are easier, and we yeah. don't want that. And unfortunately, we have seen instances of, of, of that occurring at parts in past parts in history. Um, if people want to review the draft legislation, where's the best place to find it? So if they uh, go to the ASIAL website, www.asial.com.au, or if they want to, they can email security at asial.com.au to request a copy of the, of the draft. Okay, fantastic. Well, look, Brian, thank you very much for your time. It's been fantastic chatting to you today. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more like it in the ASIAL podcast series on the ASIAL website, www.asial.com.au, under the news section. You can find it on iTunes, Blurberry, Spotify, Google Play, Podbean, and all the great places you find podcasts. And we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Security is proud to be a supporter of ASIAL's podcast series. With insightful presenters and expansive subjects, the podcast series is a must if you want to keep at the forefront of the industry. Security. Security workforce management software reimagined.